0: Well, welcome here to this uh, new adventure for the family of Grace Baptist Church, London, Ohio. We are glad that you joined us, and if you just happened to stumble across this particular video presentation, uh, we're, we're glad that you are here. If you were looking for David Jeremiah or Craig Miller or somebody else, sorry about your luck. But we're glad to have you with us, and we're looking forward to... Uh, uh, sharing in the scriptures even today, since this is our first uh, opportunity here to get into the uh, uh the world of video and uh, put this out on the, on the world wide web of some regard, and as uh so many uh television preachers do it's good for us to uh to hawk i mean to offer something here for you and so we want to make sure that we are keeping up with the times even in that way, knowing these are difficult times, and so we're making this offer to you for uh uh, the first five people who send in a, um, a check of $1,000. Um, uh, we want to uh, give you a special special gift of this roll of toilet paper. This is the uh, the advantage we want to give to you. We recognize these are trying times in which we live. We've all seen the videos of people fighting over this stuff at Costco or your local store. And so we want to do our part in helping you out. So uh, for the first uh, five people who send in a check of $1,000, we're going to offer you this roll of toilet paper. And so we, uh, want to make sure that we're keeping up with, with everybody else, uh, who is out there. No one's offering surely anything as valuable as that. If you got a Bible with you, we want to look at Hebrews chapter two. Uh, here at Grace Baptist Church, we're looking at Hebrew and studying through the book of Hebrews and we have worked our way up into chapter two. And this morning we're going to begin in verse 14. We're going to give you a brief uh, background here of where we're at. And then we're going to work our way into the text itself. But I'd like to pray as we begin our time together. So, Heavenly Father, we're asking for your blessing upon that which we do here today. We recognize every time we open the Scriptures, it is important stuff. We recognize, Lord, this is you speaking to us. Uh, we want to be faithful to the text. So we're asking that you would uh, guide in this presentation and that the Holy Spirit indeed would... Uh, take control of all that is done and so the end result would be an accurate rendering of what the scripture teaches us and then we're seeking also the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the understanding and application of this to our lives Uh, this text is about Jesus and so Lord we trust that as a result of our time together today we will know him more we will love him better and so Lord we thank you for this uh, opportunity to present the gospel in this manner. We'll give you the glory for Jesus' sake, and amen. As we were looking at Hebrews chapter 2, just to kind of bring you up to date of of where we are, the the book of Hebrews is about Jesus being better, better than angels, better than Moses, better than the Old Covenant. And we're working our way through that particular study. And then in chapter 1 is where the writer begins, simply saying, Jesus is better than the angels. He is a better revelator. He has given to us a better revelation. And then in chapter 2, the first four verses gives us a warning. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation that has been offered to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? Then we to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. We're looking and answering the question here that uh, uh, a possible objection which uh, some of these readers of this letter would have had. Their question and their objection would simply be, if Jesus is better than angels, why did he become man? Because we're looking at the readers of this particular letter as those Hebrew Christians, those who were saved out of synagogue worship, those who were saved out of uh, um, the, uh, the, the sacrificial system, those who were grew up in it—that's all they knew. That's where their family was. That's where their friends were. And now, as they have received Jesus as their Messiah, as they have accepted the, the the gospel message of, of Jesus and His His substitution and His being the perfect Lamb of God, they found themselves now being separated from family. They found themselves separated from friends. They have lost some of their business contacts. And it would be very easy for them, because of some persecution and and the stress of the day, for them just to kind of slip back into the old system. It would have been much more comfortable for them. It would have been much easier for them to, to live daily. Perhaps some more advantages, opportunities would have been open to them. But they believe in Jesus. And so, as they're reading this letter, and they're learning about who Jesus is. Yes, they've received him as the Messiah. But yet, in their Old Testament system, angels were that which delivered the Old Testament law. And so they elevated angels. And now for Jesus to become an angel, yet the writer says Jesus is a better revelator, has given to us a a better revelation. They're having a hard time with this struggle. So in chapter 2, the writer's going to spend some time here explaining to these readers why Jesus is better, and really why Jesus had to come, why he had to become a man. And so as we're looking at this, we're seeking to answer that particular question here. And in our text, in chapter 2, verse 5, we saw man's destiny man's destiny for under the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak and so we recognize man's destiny is to one day rule an habitable world there's going to be another world which is going to come it says and man will rule over that it won't be angels man will rule over that so any rule any angel rule over man presently is only temporary. In verse 6 we looked at man's designation. But one in a certain place testified saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Again in our study we recognize that unique phrase son of man in this particular context is looking at mankind. We recognize in the Gospels Jesus used that of himself but in this it's not talking about Jesus, it's talking about mankind. What is mankind that thou art mindful of him? Or mankind that thou visitest him? He's recognizing who man is. uh, And for a little time here, you have ranked him lower than the angels. Again, verse 5, one day he will be over the angels. Verse 6, yet for a while, man was ranked lower than the angels. Man was made to to master his world. Verse 7, Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor. Thou didst set him over the works of thy hands. Man was created to have dominion. Man was created to rule over this world. But yet for a certain time, man then was placed under angels. Man's detour actually took place in verse 8. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, man's feet, He again, he had dominion, he had rule. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Man had dominion. Man was given that place. He had rule over over mankind. What caused him to lose that? Well, that was sin. Man had his position. He had his prestige. He had his power. But he wanted more. And then he allowed, the, the the enemy allowed Satan to deceive him into thinking that he could actually have more. That God was withholding something from him. And so man in his rebellion, man in his sin, actually handed over the scepter that he was given from God as, as the, the one who's to rule over this earth. He handed that scepter then to Satan. Where First John chapter 5 19 tells us the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That Satan is the God of this world. He is the one that rules. Man had it. He yielded it over. And so we have man's detour there in chapter 2, verse 8. And then verses 9 through 13, we looked at man's deliverance. Why is it now, again, we're asking the question, why did Jesus become man? Verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him from whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons unto glory and to make the captive of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him and again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. So in man's deliverance here, the Lord Jesus Christ has regained for man his rightful place over this earth, to have dominion, to rule. In so doing, it says he tasted death for every man. doesn't mean he nibbled at it. It means he partook fully of all that death had to offer and all that death provided upon him. And as he became then the captain of their salvation, says he was made perfect through his sufferings. So when we think of man's deliverance, we're looking here at uh, his deliverance because of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking at the the focus here of, of the Lord Jesus Christ for both he that sanctifieth and they that sanctified are all one. For he's not ashamed to call them brethren. And then we look at the witness in verses 12 and 13 where the writer goes back to, Old Testament uh, verses in letting these readers know, readers who were very familiar with the Old Testament, that all of this is grounded in what they understood and what they had read earlier in their studies, even in the, in the synagogues. He says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church I will sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God hath given me, verses from my, the book of Isaiah, where God, Isaiah received the message that Isaiah and his children, specifically his two sons, were set up for the people of Israel as for signs and wonders. And we understood that last week as we talked about their names. Uh, and, and the meaning of those names was a message to the people of Israel. So that brings us up to verse 14, where we want to look uh, here today. And so just briefly then, man's destiny, man's designation, man's detour, man's deliverance, Beginning in verse 14, I've called this man's delegate. Man's delegate. Who is standing in for man here and what do we learn? Because we're looking here and we recognize that only in the all-wise plan of God and only an all-wise God could have conceived the plan of the incarnation. Where God to become flesh. For God to stoop down in order to raise man from his hopelessness says in verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus became flesh and blood. He became fully in every way identified with man. Flesh and blood is an expression synonymous with the weaker and the perishable aspect of man's nature. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood cannot inherit uh, heaven. It cannot inherit life everlasting. Flesh and blood was made for this earth here. Jesus took part of the same. And so in this answer to why Jesus became man, not only what we've already looked at, but now he's looking at Jesus as the delegate Jesus as a substitute, Jesus as one who's going to minister on behalf of man whom he has become one. And so the writer is going to give us three results of Christ's works. Of Christ's work. Um, Jesus identified with man, and we recognize the sufferings of death which he has uh, accomplished, and the three powerful results of that. The first one in verse fourteen, he shatters the power of the devil. He shatters the power of the devil. He says that he took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. He who had the power of death. So to shatter the power of the devil. To destroy simply means to make ineffective, to render powerless, to put out of use. One writer says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so we're looking here at what Jesus has accomplished and what Jesus has done. First John chapter 3 verse 8. He that doeth sin, he that practices sin is of the devil. For the devil sins from the very beginning. To this end was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. The word destroy in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, means to lose, means to break, means to dissolve. Now here in our text, in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 2, the word destroy does not mean to annihilate. Bob Sumner in his book on, in, on Hebrews says this, Satan is very much alive and disgustingly healthy. So he hasn't been destroyed here to the point where he's been annihilated. It's just thing we reminded here that Satan indeed has the power of death, he introduced death into the world, he exercised his dominion in his own realm, this realm of death. he's the Lord of death because of sin, sin which produces death was all under his control, so that as we're looking at this, in one sense, death is no more because of what Jesus has done. For in and through him, death is already destroyed, Second Timothy chapter 1. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In another sense, complete victory over death awaits the final consummation. So he's going to destroy him. He's going to um, render him useless because he had the power of death. As death ultimately will be abolished to be entirely idle, useless, there in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. And that's the same word we have here for destroy in verse 14 of chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. Revelation chapter 20 verse 14 tells us and death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And so as the delegate here for man, Jesus is the one now who has suffered here every aspect of death in the process. He has shattered the power of the devil. And knowing as he shattered the power of the devil, it says he, has, he saves the prisoner from fear, verse 15, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Death has always been an enemy of man. Man has always feared death. There's an uncertainty about that. In the day and age in which we live, with this virus which is taking place, uh, there's been a lot of uh, uh, activity and all of based on the reality of death. We recognize many have died. Chances are, many more. The issue that we're faced with is, how are we going to approach that? What is going to be our relationship to death? How are we going to look upon death when it ultimately gets to us? It may not be this virus. It may be something else entirely when, the, when our days upon this earth are over. But what is, how are we going to approach that? It says he delivers them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So there's two sides here of Christ's triumph over death. He destroyed him and had the power of death. And then he set at liberty those who were the bondservants of death. Death has held man's sway, death was all the man had to anticipate, all the man had to look forward to. They did not know what was on the other side. Man feared death. Man feared the consequences of death. But as the captain of their salvation, as the leader here of their salvation, Jesus has beaten back the enemy and has opened the way of escape. Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. It is not fitting that the sons, that the children, those who now Jesus has chosen to call brethren, it is not fitting for them to live under the power of darkness. And without Christ, that's exactly where a man is. Man does not need to live in bondage. He does not need to live in the power of darkness. We were all there one day, Acts twenty-six eighteen, to open their eyes. That was the ministry. That Paul here was a, a holding out to the elders to open their eyes, to turn them back from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance, inheritance among them who are sanctified by faith that is in me. Open their eyes. One day your eyes were open if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. One day you recognize that the power of darkness was over you. You recognize that you had every reason to fear death. But the ministry of the gospel is to open our eyes. And again, the scripture said to turn them from darkness to the light. Jesus came and his identity with man, not only to destroy the works of the devil, but also to save the prisoners from fear. Since men are his brothers, it is they that Christ came to save. Not angels. Not angels. So he delivers them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so as Jesus Christ has come here, his concern then is for man. His concern is who man is his concern is to provide assistance his concern is to provide help then for man to deliver them because they one time lived in bondage they were subject to that verse 16 verily he took not on him the nature of angels but he took on him the seed of abraham he took hold of him He came along, he's he's concerned with him. He came along to to help him. He said he took on him the seed of Abraham. He came to help. He's concerned with him. The word is going to appear appear again in in chapter 8, where God took hold of his people and led them out of Egypt. See, the writer here is not simply saying that Jesus is concerned with men, but that he, he helps them, he delivers them. The entire thought is that he laid hold of men in order to help them out of their distressed condition. The descendants of Abraham might well refer to fleshly Israel. That is, a, the, the author here is writing as a, as a Hebrew to Hebrews. And he asserts here that, that Christ came especially to them. Says he took not hold of angels. It wasn't angels here where his ministry, as man, was to to support. It's the seed of Abraham that he took hold of. But yet the very next phrase here, as he talks about being likened to his brethren, there in verse 17, uh, Christ had to be made like man, not that he had to be made like the Hebrew race. I think it seems better to understand the descendants of Abraham there in, in verse 16, in, in the broader reference to man as a whole and all the children of Abraham, all of those who have come by faith to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus here, as the the writer is letting us know, he's he's introducing this this new area here of what Jesus is doing and, and how Jesus is ministering in the lives Of his people he's destroyed the works of the devil he's saving those who had the fear of death all their time look at verse 17 wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God and to make reconciliation for the sins of the people Jesus became, in every respect, a human being, except he did not sin. As sanctifier, verse 11, he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified. He's the one that sanctifies. Just the simple fact that he sanctifies implies sinlessness, where he has the, the, the capability of doing that. Man's trials, man's burdens, their pains, their sighs now have become that of Jesus. Jesus learned to see things from the human plane. And the writer here in verse 17 just gives a sudden introduction introduction as Jesus' high priest suggesting that it's a topic that would have at least been familiar to the readers. He hadn't talked about it before. There's no introduction to this at all. He just jumps into the topic that even now he hasn't talked about it. Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest in the things of God. So the question is, and the question a lot of people are asking, what's God doing? What is God up to? And a lot of people are thrown in, and God's trying to get the attention of the American people. God's trying to get the attention of the world, recognizing that a, a, really a complex virus, but it, just a virus can cause havoc to so many people. It can shelter people. It can shut down nations, literally. Just a virus will God get people's attention? I have no idea if what the response is, is going to be. You surely would hope so. but what's God doing in our context that's what this this writer is about, what God is doing in the context He's bringing people to himself, and so as we're looking at this, it would be very tempting here today in the day in which we live and, and even as we do this presentation to, to speak directly to the circumstance and the situation today, well, this text indeed does. Why did Jesus become man? He became man that he might be man's delicate. He became man so that uh, uh, man would not fear of death, so that we can have, live in faith. We can live in wisdom. We can have the wisdom to do the, the right thing today, but we have faith to know that God still is watching over us. And so this writer here is talking about bringing people to Christ. That's his his approach here. But now Jesus is a faithful high priest. Now he's really going to develop that that subject of Jesus as high priest when he gets into chapter 4, really beginning in verse 14. It's also interesting when you look at this in the New Testament. There are no specific references to Jesus as priest outside of the book of Hebrews. Now there are some inferences. And there are several of them, Book of Romans, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, 1 John. In fact, in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, he, Jesus points to himself as, a, um, as an intercessor. And so the, the, the thought is there without specifically the word being used, but it's truly developed here in the book of Isaiah. And so here, as man's delegate here, Jesus has shattered the power of the devil. He has saved prisoners from fear. And the third thing we're looking at, he has secured the priesthood for sinners. He's become a high he secured the priesthood for sinners. Two things we're gonna to want to look at. What did this high priest do? First thing he did was covering for sins. Covering for sins. Again, looking at verse 17. He became a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. He's now speaking in a general way of those qualities that enabled Jesus to become a high priest. Merciful and faithful. To God, he was very faithful. He proved himself faithful. He suffered but he was never shaken in his purpose. You remember that even in the garden, he prayed, not my will, but thine be done. He was anticipating the horrors of the cross. He was anticipating the horrors of sin being placed upon him, but not my will, but thine be done. He suffered, but he was never shaken in his purpose. See, the writer here is speaking of Jesus as a merciful and faithful high priest in the sense that he is reliable and dependable. So believers can trust in him with absolute confidence. Believers can trust in him with absolute confidence. That really takes us back in many regards to how we began this particular book, when we first two or three uh, verses, four verses of, of this particular letter, where he describes Jesus as the, the divine articulation of God. Jesus is the divine architect. Jesus is the divine adjective. Jesus is the divine atonement. Jesus is the divine advocate. And under the divine, in each one of those, we had a reference to that divine articulation, hear him. Divine architect, follow him. Divine adjective, imitate him. Divine atonement, trust him. Divine advocate, go to him. Believers can trust in him with absolute confidence. So, before God, he showed himself to be faithful. Before man now, he's proved proved himself to be very merciful, proved himself to have compassion, because he knows and he understands. He can truly represent men to God. He knows what man is going through. See, as priest, it is his responsibility to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. As as priest, it's his function. And the word reconciliation is the word propitiation. Some text uses the word propitiation here. Propitiation for the sins of the people. As a merciful high priest, he makes reconciliation. The word is only used two times in the New Testament. The other was in Luke chapter 18, verse 13, where you have the account of the publican as he's there, and he won't even lift up his eyes, but he said, God, be merciful unto me. The word merciful there is the same word we're looking at right here. Propitiation. The word propitiation includes satisfying the wrath of God. So it becomes a very important word it's a word that's been discussed down through the years, and a lot of people don't like propitiation because they don't like the thought of the wrath of God. God is loving. God is compassionate. God is merciful. We like all those things. But the fact that that God can be angry, that God will bring judgment, that God has wrath, a lot of churches, a lot of preachers shy away from that. But the text here, and using the word propitiation, we have to include the reality that God is a wrathful God. The wrath of God which is due to the sinner. The wrath of God which will indeed be poured out upon all sinners apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath of God due to that sinner in this context has been diverted from the sinner and has fallen on Jesus. But Jesus procures forgiveness. He removes every tinge of guilt from the sinner's heart. That's his primary function as high priest. See, God is the only one who could could put the plan of salvation together. God the Son was sent by the Father to take the wrath of the Father upon himself in order that sinners who put their trust in him might be declared righteous and reconciled to their God. So as high priest, Jesus provided a cover for their sins. Verse 18. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to secure them that are tempted. As high priest, he deals not only with sinners, dealing with their sins, nailing their sins to the cross, but he deals also here with the saints. Verse 17, dealing with sinners, sins of the people. Verse 18, dealing with those who have come to him, who are dependent upon him as a high priest. Those who are seeking comfort even in their sufferings. See, if we're to have victory in our personal lives, we need daily help from Him. Jesus just doesn't save us and and, and leaves us out there. He saves us, but He's always there to provide help for us. See, believers cannot experience anything that He has not already experienced. He Himself, it says there, He Himself has suffered, He's been tempted. We recognize back in chapter 2, verse 9, it talks about the suffering of death that Jesus has already experienced. In death, he was tempted in a particular manner. And over in chapter 5, it says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that were able to save him from death, was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered and being made perfect he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Chapter 5 verses 7, 8 and 9. It was suffering for Jesus just to be tempted. And furthermore temptation is only suffering when it's resisted. Temptation is only suffering when it's resisted. That's why Many people give in way too early. They, they, they give in and they do not suffer. In fact, people rather enjoy their sin. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 17. Stolen waters are sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Proverbs 20, verse 17. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterwards it fills his mouth with gravel. Jesus did not die to deliver us from temptation only, but from the power of temptation. Then deliver us from temptation. Temptation is there. We're still dealing with it. But from the power of temptation. And so he says there at the end of verse 18, he's able to, to come to their aid, them that are being tempted. It says he runs at the call for help. One writer says this, Courage, Jesus understands. He has been through it all. He knows how hard it is to bear suffering without being deflected from the will of God. Another old preacher put it this way, Son, when in trouble, kneel down and ask God's help, but never climb over the fence into the devil's ground, and then kneel and ask for help. Always pray from God's side of the fence. He's there to help. But don't necessarily count on him to drag you out of trouble that you have willingly walked into. Jesus was tempted in a manner that we have never experienced. Jesus suffered the full weight of temptation. We give in long before that. story is told from years ago as the Union Pacific Railroad was being constructed. An elaborate trestle bridge was uh, uh, built across a large canyon out west. Running to test the bridge, the, the builder loaded a train with extra cars and equipment really to, to double its normal payload. The train was then driven out to the middle of the bridge where it stayed an entire day. One worker asked the engineer, aren't you you trying to break this bridge? No. He says, I'm trying to prove that the bridge won't break. See, in the same way, the temptations Jesus faced were designed to see if he would sin. Were not designed to see if he would sin, but to prove that he would not sin. Here in Hebrews chapter 2, we've called this chapter man's recovery. It's man's destiny to one day rule another kingdom. It's man's designation to have dominion over this kingdom. It's man's detour that brought sin into the world and yielded his rightful place over to Satan. It's man's deliverance through Jesus as the second Adam to regain man's place. It's man's delegate then as high priest that provides man with an intercessor. Jesus died on behalf of man. As we noted in Romans chapter 6, man must consider himself also dead and alive to Christ Jesus. See, if Jesus is your high priest, you must be his child, one of the brethren. If you're going to see the power of darkness rendered powerless in your own life, you must be a believer. You must understand what the Gospel says. You must trust Him. He is worthy to be trusted. There are three groups of people we believe that this writer may have had in mind when he wrote this particular book. Saved Jews. Convinced unbelievers. Those who, those who really did understand and, and, and they recognized Jesus as the Messiah, but the cause of their their ties to the world system and they recognized what they thought they were going to lose. They they had a hard time fully committing themselves to Him. And of course those who were the total rejectors. I don't know who may be listening to this here today. But let me ask you this question. Do you live under the pressure of eternity? There's a possibility of this virus and and the The ravages of this virus going around concern you. You Does the possibility of death cause you fear? You have a delicate, you have someone on your behalf. You have Jesus. There's no reason to face any of this in fear. It may not be the virus, it may be some other things of great concern to you. Jesus is there. He understands the pressures, the weight which we are experiencing. So to summarize this chapter, why did Jesus become man if he's really greater than angels? To taste death for every man. To bring many sons to glory. To unite us with himself. To declare us as his brethren and his children. To destroy him that had the power of death. To deliver us. To become our merciful and faithful high Priest to deliver us from the power of temptation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the text as we've understood it here today. We thank you for the things that you desire for us to learn, for us to have confidence in. And so, Lord, for any who may stumble across this particular video, and for those who even sought it out, we're asking, oh God, for their relationship to you. Pray, O oh God, for the confidence which they have in Jesus as their high priest. Because he's only their high priest because he suffered death. He, he, he identifies with, with all that we are experiencing. He's provided cover for our sins. He is the one that took upon him the wrath of God. And he's the one who comes to our aid even now to help us in our time of need. He is indeed a merciful and faithful high priest. So we're asking, O God, for the love of the Lord Jesus Christ to be upon each, that their confidence indeed would be in him. And Lord, for those who are struggling in their aspect and what they understand of salvation, Struggling in the potential of fear of death, struggling even in the world of temptation. We pray, O oh God, that contact this ministry, contact another faithful Bible teacher, and just pour out their heart. Because, oh God, Jesus came to deliver us from the power of darkness. Jesus came that we might be and might recognize that we likewise can be dead to sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, to that end, we commit this message, we commit this opportunity today. Until such time as we have opportunity to meet again, may Jesus be honored and glorified in each of our lives. And amen.